All right, here we go. I'll get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. With me today is Bruce and coming back to the podcast, Will. Hey, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> my, my hair. <laughs> I don't have a fop. I, I don't have Dapper Dan. I have fop. I'm a Dapper Dan man. Well, I can get it. It'll be about two weeks. <laughs> Folks, we are uh, doing our next in our Coen Brothers series. Uh, probably, I would say, the most seen out of all Coen Brothers movies. I mean, I know Box Office, True Grit is their biggest success. But if you ask most people what movie they have seen, they'll always say, oh, brother, where art thou? Because it is the, the this movie from 2000 impact on American society is in way more in. Uh, expansive than anyone could realize. So, yes, we're talking about, at the time, their most successful film. And, honestly, it's my most quotable um, Coen Brothers film, and I would put it in my number two behind Miller's Crossing. So, <sighs> But has it got that Barton Fink feeling? I want that Barton Fink feeling. But No, I, I feel you. Um, this film, it, it, it hit, it hit it, you know, it's still <laughs> their work, but it also just hit uh, a little bit of a uh, right time, right place, reintroduced some music to people who had not heard it. Uh, you know, I think it really did very well there uh, for for where it came into existence. I agree. Um, so this is, uh, people say that this is one of the most quoted. I think this is not the most quoted Coen Brothers film. I think that's probably the big Lebowski, honestly. Mm. Uh, um, in terms of memeology and meme worthiness, I think that uh, The Big Lebowski has far surpassed Oh Brother. But Oh Brother is like up there, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I think the difference is the it's easier to quote Oh Brother Art Thou than it is Big Lebowski for, you know, because there's so much shut the fuck up Donnie's. That... Well, like, man, that's just your opinion. Yeah. I mean... uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, but... It really brings the room together. <laughs> nobody and, fucks with the jesus that's right anyway so oh brother where art though so let me give you a little history on my history with this film um i saw this when it came out uh i had just i just literally just graduated from college uh and this movie came out what in july when did this no movie it came come out? Uh, well we didn't get till december it okay it was released in limited theaters in October and they didn't really hit like in Knoxville didn't hit till December. Yeah. I didn't, I, I knew it came out cause uh, I remember going to see this with a bunch of coworkers. I had started going to, uh, I'd started working at the, the computer science lab uh, as part of my grad student stuff. And one of my coworkers was obsessed with Coen brothers films <laughs> and he dragged us all to go see this film. Cause you know, I mean, we're a bunch of early 20 something losers uh you know linux admins uh, <laughs> well, technically wow. i mean well one of them is going to chime in here and be like no technically we were on sun os i'm like shut up we were linux admins <laughs> no one's going to know what sun os is um some of our listeners are screaming right now and I I, I I i am just kidding i know what sun os is and solaris too guys don't anyway i'm getting sidetracked point is bunch of nerds go drag to a nerd movie and uh, this really was a fantastic theatrical experience, just being with the audience. Like, I think it's viewed best with a very large group of people who haven't seen it. Um, because 
the audience reactions were way more in this theater than a lot of other audience reactions, which yeah sort of surprised me, but it was fun. I want to say I saw it at the Tara Theater in Atlanta, and I pretty much wasn't sure what I was going in for, um, who I was dating at the time, I think, is the one who suggested this film, being much more of an av- active Coen Brothers fan than I was. I owe her one for that, though. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, um, I saw this in January. I took Jen, and we've been only been dating for about a month and a half, and She's in the country music. I wasn't, but I'm a big Coen Brothers fanatic. I mean, I literally saw Big Lebowski in the theaters by myself because it was like I was the only one who went to go see it at that show. And it was just one case where I went and no one else is in the theater. So I'm like, you know, I was obsessed with the Coen Brothers. So, of course, I have to see the new Coen Brothers film. And I took her and I was wondering how she would take it, but she loved it. So it was one of the things where I, you know, it was a good good bonding experience for us. You know, we've been together like 21 years now, but I just, uh, we were just cracking up about all the different things in the music. I didn't care for bluegrass back then, but it hooked into me. And, you know, I, I grew up as a kid listening to banjo music with my great uncle Howard. who was like 89 at the time. Cause he's like straight out from born in the smoky mountains. So that old hillbilly roots was like really kicking into me a little bit. And, also, as a film nerd, this film is so full of film nerd references that's just a fascinating. I mean, they're referencing themselves. They're referencing 1930s films and referencing 60s films. It's it's one of the great like hodgepodge, and more importantly, it's a Greek trap. You know, it's the Odyssey without actually reading the Odyssey. It's, it's no, they, the, 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 that conceit is adorable. Because they, you know, it's like, oh, oh, there's the oracle. Oh, there's the cyclops. You know, it's yeah, it's, it's uh, absolutely adorable. Yeah, it's like they use the cliff notes, or uh, they claim maybe they read a co- half of a comic book version. But the point is, like, they took the just some minor elements and kind of just played around with this because it's more than just one take. It's so many other things. I actually remember being really like at the time, and maybe this was just my in isolation because I don't know if, if he had done comedy prior to this. But someone explained to me that like George Clooney was leading this comedy, and I'm like, he's gonna be funny. <laughs> the the guy from like ER is gonna be funny, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, he's uh, well, he just started out in sitcoms in the '80s, so it, it wasn't surprising he could do comedy. I just for him to do well, Cohen he really so shined well. he really yeah. shined like and he got the that patois like the dialogue uh, the, i don't know what you'd even call that the the rhythm and the cadence of uh his speech uh was just astonishing yep it was just astonishingly well done yeah i mean the they're using so many different kind of you know ways of talking i mean you've got like Shakespearean almost cadence some words you've got your your traditional southern you know drawl you've got really unusual like heavy vocabulary kind of mixed in it it's such a you the dialogue is so special and it also makes the you know the way the actors deliver them so much funnier it's like Ulysses Everett McGill exists to demonstrate what it is to put on airs like the nature of that southern phrase is what that character is uh, yes. yeah i mean uh, the opening quote of the movie pretty much sums up his character in a single phrase which is say so for those of you who haven't seen it and if you haven't seen it just go see it it's fun yeah. as hell um he's on he's he's him and two other escaped prisoners jump on a train 
and they're in the stereotypical striped. I mean, it's on the cover of the of the of the DVD, guys. It's fine. They're in the stereotypical striped, you know, prison outfits, and they they're they're they jump up on a train, and they find a bunch of like hobos uh, riding the rails, and the first thing out of his mouth is, "Say, hey, any of you boys, Smitties?" Or if not Smitty's per se, were you otherwise trained in the metallurgic arts before strange circumstances forced you into a life of aimless wandering? <laughs> and that is, and this guy is just as hillbilly as they are, and it is completely the encapsulation of put on airs. It is fantastic. It sets the tone, and it sets the tone for the movie perfect. And let's not forget, Pete is still running outside of the train. Yeah, like Pete's still running while they're He's yapping. He's trying to help Pete. And, Pete falls, and immediately they all, all three of them get pulled out. Uh, it's and this is much more slapstick in a lot of ways um, than I was expecting when I went in to see it. And I think, I mean, have the Coen Brothers? I haven't seen as many Coen Brothers movies as perhaps I should, but I don't remember them being this slapstick up to this point. Um, well, I, the closest I would say would be if you you know, um, Raising Arizona had a yeah, lot of that's slapstick. Pretty it, slapstick. Raising yeah. Arizona did, but like other than that, like I don't. Uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, um, I, I would. The other one I would. Maybe the you know the Hudsucker Proxy has some kind of surreal slapstick in it, and to a le- to a very small extent, you can find some of that in Big Lebowski. But even then, it's not really I would call slapstick per se. But the tones are there. Well, um, th- when I say slapstick, I mean th- there's a constant stream of slapstick comedy in this movie. Yes. Unlike a lot of these other movies, where there's some, but it's not. Dare I say the focus of the film? Um. Well, of all of the films, this, you know, if you're going on the quirk to and, and surreal scale, this one's I think high. this one's, I think this is the highest. I mean, Hudsucker Proxy certainly is in contention, as is in a dark way, Barton Fink. But like, I think this one is the the least in touch with anything we'd call reality. And I'm, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's so interesting how they go for it. Now, um. It's kind of hard to explain because there's part of the reason there's so much slapstick is they're they're going at a they're looking at 1930s films and there's so many kind of tropes that they're using for it. So it's very much in the style of a 1930s film so much that you could say the soggy bottom boys are the Marx Brothers like Everett would be uh, Groucho. uh, Tommy would be Zeppo, which is something that is like and then you have like I've always argued like I think. Pete, since he rarely talks that much, was supposed to be Harpo, and Delmar was supposed to be Chica. But the idea is you get the four of them are essentially a take on the Marx Brothers. Or you could also say they're a take on the Stooges. So it's the so you got these kind of those kind of elements in there. You also got elements of Wizard of Oz in there. You got elements of the Grapes of Wrath in there. You've got elements of like, you know, Fred and Fred is staring Ginger Roger musicals. You've got all these kind of weird elements, plus Sullivan's travels. The, the title of the movie is from a line in Sullivan's Travel. So you get all these kind of weird you know, references that they're throwing in that only certain types of movie nerds would get or, or big-time comedy nerds would get. Or, or, or mythology nerds. I mean, oh, yeah. this is basically – so one of the things that's interesting is this is basically a fairy story through the lens of, you know – <laughs> 19 you know early 1900s to 1920s america yes yeah, like, depression era depression era stuff if you just if you if you took everything through that lens uh and stay out of the woolworth um just, we don't know if we were throw, we were throwing the woolworth are we banned from all of them or just the one just the one i love the whole the whole sequence about woolworth just 
And so, so Woolworth means a lot to me because uh, when I was growing up, my grandparents would shop at Woolworths. There was a Woolworths in, in the town that they lived in, and there were none anywhere else that I was aware of. Yeah, because so, we should point out Woolworths basically was obsolete by the 80s. It was very rare to find a Woolworth. There's so many other department chains that kind of put them out. Yeah, they. I mean, they went out of business when I was little. But before that, you know, my grandparents would take shopping to Woolworths, and it was apparently a big deal for them to go to the Woolworths. Like, they grew up Depression era. And, I mean, you could just see my, my, my grandparents' faces light up going in just from the variety of – just the stuff, you know? Yeah. Just they, they had to I mean, you know, my grandmother saved wrapping paper till, oh, yeah. till from from till the day she could no longer hold wrapping paper. Like if you unwrapped a Christmas present, you had to be very careful with and it was always taped so that it was easy to, yeah. to to undo because then they would reuse it the next year. And I was I mean, this is the kind of stuff. So going into a department store was always a weird delight. And I never understood it until long after. uh it you know it, you know long after I was a little kid and visiting them all the time, um, so seeing all this stuff just really reminded me of of when I was very young visiting my grandparents. It just some of the some of the attitude. I mean, they were also very southern, so there's that. Yeah. Now the parts that don't remind me of my grandparents are like the Klan rally, which holy crap, the Klan rally. Which by the <laughs> way, that is straight a redone of Wizard of Oz because. That's, you know, if you've seen Wizards of Oz, when they go to rescue Dorothy at the witch's castle, they're doing that exact song and they're marching in those exact moves. So it's the, you know, they're so much as like they're the you know, scarecrow and the tin man and the cowardly lion trying to save Dorothy. It's it's another weird like, hey, let's take this part and just kind of retweak it and make it even more kind of bizarre. Also, yeah. uh, shout out to Chris Thomas King for being probably my favorite character in the movie. Uh, he plays he, Tommy Johnson, who sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the ability to play guitar. <laughs> real good too. Which is, which is just the weird. Like it's that's such a weird. Well, see, thing. The thing. There really was a Tommy Johnson who did claim that, and then Robert Johnson, the great blues guitarist, stole that story and wrote Crossroads. Which, oh wow! Uh, and of course, yep. see, he was at a crossroads. So yeah, the idea is. That's another thing. Like there was a, a blues guitarist named Tommy Johnson who claimed he was he did sell his soul to the devil at a crossroads. He died young. Robert Johnson took that story, ran with it, wrote the song Crossroads. He also died young. But you know, it's another one of those things. Like they're taking the myth and playing around with that. Yep. yep. Pappy O'Daniel. There was a Pappy O'Daniel. He wasn't governor yep. of Mississippi. He was governor of Texas. But the character is more based on Huey Long, the Kingfish, who was. Uh, who is essentially what that you know, Papio Dan was based on. So it's like you, you we're taking tropes and messing with it, but in a fun way. It's well, like also, it's not trying to be historically accurate, it's being historically silly. Oh, also, they literally run the one guy out on a rail, which, you know, I, I always understood that it meant, you know, to run someone out of town, but to see it like literalized was just. It made me drop yep. my jaw. Yeah, I mean, it's just so amazing. Is you or is you not my constituents? I just love that whole. And man, I quote the shit out of that all the time. I'm always <laughs> making jokes about that, and 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 uh, you know, I, I quote this movie all the time. Uh, I had such a good time watching this movie. Yeah, when I first I, saw it, and then when I saw it again, I was just so happy to see it. Oh yeah, we. 
okay, so we bought the DVD. I still have the like DVD we got from like you know 2001. It's what I watch all the time. I don't want to upgrade. I just, it's just a personal thing. Jen and I have seen Allison Krauss and Union Station multiple times, and Dan Kaminsky, who is the one who sang for George Clooney, they do all the songs from Oh Brother Where Art Thou during the show. I mean, it's, you know, when you see them perform, you're like, wow, that's exactly how they sing it. It's, it's, yep. Well, yeah, I, mean, I don't I don't always go out and buy a soundtrack when I see a movie. In fact, that's actually super rare. But the first thing I did as soon as it became available was buy the soundtrack to this movie on okay. CD. As did I. Now, just so do I. That. <laughs> now, now, what I'll say, though, is I, I want to back up and do, you know, do my actual method of analysis. The thing I promised you I would do. Uh, I, I they they I, I think it's very clear what they were going for. Well, actually, maybe a little harder to find than you might think, but because it is sort of odd, like why the Odyssey? Why this time period? Why? Why? Why are you making this film with these influences is a question I'd like to hear them talk about, actually. But in terms of what they're doing, they're making a. Uh, uh, a fable from the 30s. That's what they're going to do. We're going to make a fable from the 30s. In order to make it feel that way, we're going to make it surreal and we're going to give it a classical mythological structure. Um, and we're going to just have a great time with it. And then to immerse you in it, we're going to make certain the film has a feel of that faded, uh, the bits in the Wizard of Oz before they break out the Technicolor sepia tone. And then we're also going to find the best soundtrack we'll ever work with. Um, and that is the part that interests me, because I don't think they've ever had music so core in one of their films. I just maybe I don't know the yeah. other films. Well, the and I don't know that they've ever had something like in terms of where this film landed. The film landed and was very well received and quite influential and very popular. And then the soundtrack literally shaped a whole bunch of artists and like you know arguably you would not have mumford and sons if this hadn't happened oh, like, yeah. it, all of that's just dogpiled out and it's an amazing sort of cultural watershed for a single film and its soundtrack to do uh i, I know there are a few others like easy rider sort of did that but like this th th they did it first you know so it was easy sort of for them so yeah i did there but yeah uh, yeah i mean you know, going back to the soundtrack, so it's a mixture of like you know, new recordings of classic songs and old, like you know, the opening sequence where they're you know, that's a recording that was taken by the Lomaxes in 1920s of a chain gang chopping wood, and then they just simply loop that and have them you know, cutting you know, breaking rocks, you know, and that's just an old recording because those guys would go around finding chain gangs, singing songs, and record them just to and then try to sell them. It's it's such a neo neat side bit about that. And of course the soundtrack won the Grammy for best album. No mm -hmm. soundtrack had won that in like decades and nor had a, a, a country bluegrass album had won the Grammy for best uh, album. It's that was a big shock when it happened and it was kind of really celebrated. The it's such a, you know, culturally, you know, change of, I mean, Jack White's blue, you know, he he'll alternate between doing, you know, heavy rock and doing like bluegrass and folk yeah and you're right mumford and sons definitely would not have ex existed and when they get no, or but, or even i mean more recent the dead south those guys yes. that's yep uh, there's a whole this film. there's a whole bunch of 
modern bluegrass takes that you can trace back to this film. Let me put it this way: I'm a I'm a child of the '90s. I grew up on grunge and those movements. You know, that's the music of my youth. That's the music I turn to when I want. You know, when I'm feeling blue. And I, I was very cynical about music. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, I was, I was Jane's addiction uplifts you when you're down. No, but... I I was never into Jane's addiction. I was very much more into grunge. Uh, you know. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, etc. Still am. Up, uh, uplifting? Yeah. Uh, it, now, um, it's I'm not uplifting, well, you, but you it makes me feel better about it. myself. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, I eventually <laughs> expanded my musical taste, but this is 2000 we're talking about. This is 21 years ago when my musical tastes were still pretty much rooted in my high school musical tastes. And I heard all the music in this movie, and it all really struck a chord to the point where I went out and bought a soundtrack, which I don't do. Like, I, I honestly don't buy soundtracks generally. I know a lot of people do, but I don't. So the fact that I went out and bought this and then listened to it on repeat for like days and days and days after I got it, I just loved it so much. Mm -hmm. And it's still part of my regular rotation. And it caused me to go, well, hey, I didn't know bluegrass could be this good. What about other musicals? It really blah yep. you know cause my musical taste to blossom and i really have to thank this movie for it and the soundtrack which has you know i'll even i'll even <laughs> sing snatches of it just going about my day i'll find myself you know humming uh you know man of constant sorrow or oh, oh yeah. death uh, oh man and let's point out oh death is one of the most like disturbing songs but you know ralph stanley who was in his 80s recording it is just was just i mean it's just so haunting the way he performed it and you know, Will and I, you know, we went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He played there pretty much every, you know, every few weeks. He was one of the locals who would just come do shows at like the Laurel Theater, which is this old church right off, you know, up in the Fort Santa there. So down the street, a couple blocks from our university. And he was just one of those guys. He'd always be just doing like small shows for most of his career. And then he does this film and uh, then he's like playing Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I mean it's it's weird. Um, but I mean the other cultural impacts. I mean this has impacted things as far away for, as video games. Uh, there's a whole video game that's basically, what if Oh Brother Where Art Thou was it was a vignette series narrated by a skeleton who plays a guitar, um, <laughs> and the the game is called uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. That's it, a great title. It, it was critically acclaimed, although it was not a financial success. I mean you can still go get it. It's it's. It's a little rough in the gameplay parts, but it does a lot of this legends and myths through this lens of a particular time period. In this case, it was the Depression era again, because uh, it's you know it's tracking stories of people traveling across the United States trying to make things better or worse, depending on you know how what you pick. Um, and the music is is fantastic. Um, yeah. You've got games like uh, West of Loathing, which is uh, a cowboy game uh, with stick figures. It's very irreverent, but the music has a lot of the same, you know, it picks up a lot of, it, it has its own style. And yeah. The music's excellent there too. In fact, it's about the same guy who did Where the Water t uh, Tastes Like Wine. Oddly enough, I just saw that on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, great guy. Go get his stuff. I bought it on SoundCloud. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and now, look, look, I should point out T-Barn Burnett, who is the who was overseeing all the music. He did music for the big Lebowski. And, you know, so he worked with them already. And then he would go on to do quite a few of their movies afterwards. Like, you know, when we cover uh, inside Lewin Davis, that was a, that's another one where the music is extremely important. And he was very, you know, 
you know, hands on about picking all these folk songs and these how it's performed. So, you know, just the fact that, you know, and, I, you know, when I saw him, I saw him live in 2006. Uh, he was j- playing with Robert Plant and Alison Krauss in this kind of hybrid bluegrass rock band. And he would do solos while they would take breaks. And he's a very good singer and a really great guitarist. And so weird to see. Yeah, and once again, that's a side thing of our brother Rock that Robert Plant and Allison Krauss made a kind of a '50s bluegrass, you know, hybrid album, and they would do versions of Led Zeppelin with this kind of bluegrassy vibe. One of the most fascinating shows I've ever seen, and I just like I said, it's another thing about this. But you know, we should talk a little bit more about the movie. I think some of our listeners are probably like, "Yes, this is not a music podcast," but it, with this film, you have to talk about. With the this film, you have well. to talk about it. But yeah. Um... I mean, the performances are on point uh, in terms of uh, Bruce's criteria of did they accomplish what they accomplished? Yeah, you want to. I mean, John Goodman plays a great Cyclops. Um, the siren scene uh, makes perfect sense. I mean, it's one of those things where it makes sense in context. Like if you cut it out and just show it as a as a clip on YouTube, it's gonna be kind of weird. But if you see everything leading up to it, the whole sequence makes so much more sense. Um, I mean, them uh, sirens and loved him up and turned him into horn- turned him into a hornet toad, which again we just quote all the time. So, <laughs> oh, good lord! Anyway, so I don't think that's Pete. <laughs> old and, and I love that. And uh, George Clooney puts on a tremendous comedic performance. I think John Turturro is great in this. I think um, Tim Blake uh, Nelson, yeah. Yeah, I, I always lose my, my train of thought when I'm talking about this movie because yeah. I get distracted by things because they don't have any Dapper Dan down at the store. Um, and it bugs me, man. Uh, <laughs> God, I love this movie. By the uh, way, my favorite line in the movie is, and it's early in the film, but you know, after they, uh, you know, they get to hit, hit cousin Wash's place, and you know, after you know, yeah, yeah. he's like, "I nick the senses, man." But then, you know, they're eating dinner, and of course, that's when the Mrs. Hogwall, "Are you in an OFT?" Are you in an OFT, man? Uh, but, I've used that in in context and out of context so but many times. It's the it's the follow up line. He's like, "I do miss your cooking," and he's like, "Well, this stew's really good." He's you think so? I slaughtered this horse last Tuesday. I'm reckon she's finally starting to turn. <laughs> <laughs> Every uh, time, it's the look that Tim, you know, that Delmar gets when he's like, "We're eating, we're eating <laughs> horse meat, but more importantly, we're eating spoiled spoiled horse meat." <laughs> we, yeah, we call the other two guys meat. aren't really thinking about it, but he he's the only one that's really caught on. What's <laughs> well, the facial expressions that Delmar and Pete both give because Clooney's funny with his words. Totoro and Nelson are funny with their faces. Like they're yeah, just that's... Nelson's the best. So, so expressive, good. so expressive. And I mean, there's not a bad character in this. No, there are characters who don't have impact. Yeah, delivering Delmar's lines without cracking up. How do you do that? How do you actually look that sincerely concerned as Delmar? But he can. He can. Yeah, he just pulls it off. I mean, yeah, I mean the outtakes I've never watched like the outtakes, but I probably should because they've got to be so damn yeah, hilarious. Yeah, I've heard there's about 30 minutes they trimmed down. Like Kalini said, there was a sequence with them drinking moonshine that they cut, and he was like, "Yeah," and he was like, "I was bummed they cut it." But then as as I saw, I was like, "Well, we didn't need that scene." So it's like there's yeah, quite a few. That's know, what that's with the sirens, I believe. Is the sirens technically ply them with booze, uh, although you don't really see it. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. You, well, you see him drinking. They, they start pouring a, you know, a, a jug into his mouth. So, you know, he's drinking shine, but there's, yeah. there, there's probably more references to bootlegging throughout the film. They cut down because that's a whole nother genre. I guess they didn't want to add into it. You know, um, and you know, I, you know, that sequence is great. And then we get, of course, the sequence with big Dan Teague, which is just a perfect kind of, Oh no. You're like, well, yeah, it's cause you can right. see, you can see the train coming down the track. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, exactly what's about to happen. There's no suspense in what's going to happen. There's only suspense in how it's going to finally play out. And it is actually, it is heartbreaking when he crushes that poor toad and you just see Delmar just start just weeping openly. I mean, uh, which and and you're you're kind of laughing, but you're kind of feeling bad about it, and then you're kind of feeling sad, and it's just this incredible mix of emotions in that sequence. And then it cuts <sighs> to oh, Pete's actually not where actually Pete is, which is a pretty horrific sequence. You know, yeah. he's tied up, and they're whipping him like you unreconstructed unre- whelp of a whore. I mean, it's like yeah, it's, and it's you basically get the devil because. You know, as Tommy described, that he's white and with a mean old hound and dark glasses. You know, yeah, the, the, Daniel von Bargen is terrifying in this. Like he's like everything else is kind of comedic. Even even Big Dan Teak is kind of funny, and the clan sequence is kind of funny. Sheriff Cooley is not funny at all. He is the least funny thing in this movie, and he is the least funny thing in a whole we, slew I'm of movies. I mean, and you know, you know, wh- he's one of those character actors too. You like, I, I remember him in. Lord of Illusions, and he was so yes. disturbing. Yes, because because that's who you because having good old Nix be your sheriff is freaking terrifying, yeah. and it comes through in this film. And then, of course, even then, uh, around the same time, he'd been on Seinfeld as Kruger, <laughs> and the, the total opposite. So, yeah, I mean, the man has range, is I guess what we're trying to yeah, say. They cast him perfectly because it's just one of those things. Like you got a guy who's just terrifying. By not really doing anything, he's basically standing there. He barely speaks. But yeah, but when he he's... speaks, though, it's like thunder. It's just, just awful. Yeah, and... he's always in darkness except for that last scene. Like you never see him in the light until the his final scene. And it's, oh gosh, I mean the and he's essentially you know a model. For, maybe he's Hades. You know he's you know th- there's that that kind of interpreted. He's the devil. You know he's just evil, but he's. It's that it's that menacing, but not threatening. Oh, you could also way. interpret him as death. He's just relentless yeah. and always. He's you know only one thing will satisfy him, and that's your soul. You know, as the song goes. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I we, you know when he first shows up in the when they're trying to get him at at washes, and there's the well, we're gonna smoke you out, and they set the whole thing on fire, and like, damn, we're in a tight spot. You know, I've said, damn, we're in a tight spot a lot. Yeah, over the decades. Yep, I mean. It was. It's a catchphrase. It's a great yeah, one. And you know the bit where the kid comes in, drives the car, and with you know there, there's two references right there. You know, there's a reference to Paper Moon, which is another great '70s film set in the in the Depression, and also Short Round from Temple of Doom. You know, you get these. You know, they're basically taking that same trope and adding it to this sequence. So it's like that we're making a '70s movie reference. We're also making an '80s movies reference in a 1930s set film. It's, there's a lot I of layers. Um, yeah, it's. Because the fire, that's definitely, you know, that's a Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones bit that doesn't belong in here, but it works because it's the craziest. And then, of course, we get to the hilarious part with uh, when uh, Babyface Nelson shows up. Or George <laughs> I love that. Nelson. That, that whole sequence just makes me laugh because it's so, I mean, it, it seems to come out of nowhere. 
and and it just happens and everyone just kind of goes well what not a thing and then, like it goes on but oh george not the livestock yeah that's the oh, it's just so funny yeah, I, I lo- that's like the one scene they have to edit when they air on television you know when the cow gets shot it's like they they do a very good this movie's so tv friendly too it's there's not much in here that's not safe to show and you know the that's one of the special effects that is it's you know for 2000 it's not the best special effect but it's just the randomness of the these cows getting shot and hit by cars i mean it's completely random um yeah and bruce what do you think man no i'm just i'm along for the ride you guys have a better ability to to spin on this one it washes over me i i don't actually find myself uh really watching it like you're I don't know how to explain it. I'm certainly not, I'm not in it for the narrative. I'm in it for just the feel um, and just for the, the smile of it. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I I also don't quote it as much, but it is certainly quotable. So my experience is slightly different, but no, by no means bad. I still think this film is an absolute joy and treasure. That's the thing I will also say is like the editing and pacing. If you are sitting there thinking about the storyboard in your head, it, how does this flow? It's very, in theory, it's very choppy. I mean, in practice, I suppose it's choppy. But no, it's it's it a isn't. choppy film. If I had to but, criticize but, it, but somehow it isn't though. That doesn't that doesn't weigh it down. It doesn't break it. You well, know? you don't notice it because everything has this weird surreal quality. So the 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 jarring choppiness of it just adds to that quality because it it is very dreamlike and very surreal. I mean, this this movie definitely floats on you know. It's not um, yellow submarine surreal, but it's not too far below. You know, <laughs> it's a pretty weird yeah, I movie. Mean, yeah. For I mean, a road it... film, I usually have the criticism that if I can't sort of, I don't need a map of the way to Mordor necessarily, but if I can't get an idea of like what this journey is and how long it is taking, that's usually a criticism. Here it's not. I don't know why. I, I sort of just don't care. Well, it's also kind of in the same lane as the blues brothers which is another very yeah. surreal movie when you really like if you sit down and think about what's actually happening in the blues brothers movie it's surreal well, as hell they're yeah they're, i mean that, they're on, the, the mission and god ends the moment they they uh save you know they pay the uh, tax and re- reality comes back in yep right but like and the same thing happens here when, you know, they, the, the valley floods, they find the ring. He's like, oh, you know, that, that his wife has demanded he bring to him uh, almost as a trial of, of Hercules. And he's like proudly presents the ring. He's like, that's not the ring. And he's like, what do you mean it's not the ring? And then the movie ends and it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I've counted three. <laughs> counted. Uh, oh, my goodness. That, that... Uh, and, you know, we shouldn't we haven't really brought up Holly Hunter's character, which, you know, she's Penny. So she's Penelope. But there's a side bit, too, because. In uh, uh, Raised in Arizona, her character can have kids. In this one, she's got eight. So it's, yeah. it's they're even they're even calling back Raised in Arizona. I mean, it's yeah. and she's perfect in this part because the way she talks, the way she's like yelling at Clooney, you you really see that this really well developed dynamic they have. And you know, this is the first time they were worked together, but just the way you can tell the Coens figured out how how she should act. She doesn't want him back, but or does she? And <laughs> Just well, those little I, I, details, like, who the heck is that, Starlin? You mean Starlin McGill? And he's like, I got her pregnant before I went to jail. <laughs> so there's, uh, there, there are some problems with this, with the movie. Um, let's not pretend there's not. I mean, no, as much as I've gushed over this film, I have to acknowledge, uh, as Bruce said, the editing is the, the, the story beats are choppy. It does, it, it sort of 
you can very much and then and then and then okay. this there's movie. a lot of montage there's a lot of montage so time is sort of fluid now that's part of the surrealism but still it's still it can be confusing and there were parts of this movie when i first saw it where i was a little confused about the timeline um a lot of the characters aren't developed super well like even the main characters uh pete and delmar or not pete and delmar <laughs> yeah pete and delmar um are not full-blown characters they have characteristics and they're fun but they're not they're they're a little 2d they're they're two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional george clooney's three-dimensional i would argue he is probably him and and tommy johnson are actually two of the only characters who get a bunch of backstory and tommy only just barely edges in everyone else is very much playing a role it's sort of like a greek like a greek tragedy or a greek play where the characters aren't really there because they have interesting stories to tell, but they're there to fill a purpose in the overall story. And that's what the, the take a lot of this has, which can be sort of disappointing. Holly Hunter's great, but she's also underutilized. She has one role and that's it. And she performs her role admirably and it's fine, but there's not much to her character. Yeah. You see what I mean? And, and for all that it's wonderfully enjoyable, it's not got a lot to say this film. It, yeah. It, it is, it is a series of references and homages and, and great atmospherics and joyful performances uh, that are not particularly pointing in anything. It's not like Miller's Crossing where there's a lot to think about and, you know, many ways to run it or interpret it or what is this person really thinking. There's not really a character who you go into this and go, what are they thinking? You, no. You don't think, you don't think they're thinking. You, you don't, don't really to want thinking. to. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, It's this is just, uh, this is a movie that is meant to be, we are going movie. to tell you a fun story and we're going to sing a bunch of songs and you are going to walk out of here feeling good about having seen a fun story, but there's not a huge amount. I mean, there's some social commentary. The Ku Klux Klan stuff is, is great. Um, just, you know, yeah. how, it, I mean, much like yeah. uh, the old Superman serials sort of brought the clan down in part. And I'm not going to say that's the only thing that happened, but because they exposed a lot of the, rituals and ceremonies which when you put a spotlight on them are actually pretty damn goofy and this movie leans into that and it works uh the clan is a laughing stock in this movie as it oh, should be and who made them the color god right <laughs> i mean like that, oh, the colored guards colored and i just i can't help but laugh at that every time it happens and it just makes me cry yeah and... it's like <laughs> yeah and uh, another thing <sighs> so... you know there is one other social bit, you know, it's been, it gets hinted several times about the, you know, the, they're going to flood that valley. That's, you know, Pete and Delmar think they're going to get money and, you know, uh, everyone's yeah. trying to get, stop his wife from marrying the other guy. But, you know, we eventually get to the cabin. Yes. The TVA is flooding the valley. You know, yeah. They... Newspaper that Louis says TVA is building something. And, you know, we live in, you know, this area is, yeah, in East Tennessee, TVA has got dams everywhere. There's, I live in Clinton. There, the, Norris dams down the road from us and they flooded a big chunk of you know, land just for that dam. And that was a thing of the thirties. They were building dams everywhere. One to get people jobs, but also to set up electricity and modernize. And that this film's also kind of a, a, a hint at, you know, the old Southern time is changing. And, you mm -hmm. know, and just yeah. as ever says, they're going to electrify us, set us up on a grid and, you know, and uh, uh, again, back to the Ku Klux Klan, they do present it in a very comedic fashion, much like the uh, the Blues Brothers movies presents Nazis. 
And I hate Illinois. Not through Illinois. through the light of mo- through a modern look back at these movies twenty one years ago, or, or more in case the Blues Brothers, um, although they had a movie in two thousand two which was not very good. Uh, uh, not that name. Yeah, um, had John Goodman in it though. Um, <laughs> it did. Yeah, uh, I yeah, saw it in a theater. I regret. I don't. I don't like John Goodman unless the Coens are telling him what to do. Yep. I don't like him in anything else. <laughs> he was fine in in Monsters Inc. Anyway, and um, Argo. Yeah, and Argo, I guess. Uh, and Cloverfield Lane, or whatever the hell. That movie was. Oh, man, that's a messed up movie. That's it really. Movie. Anyway, I, I keep. I'm, I see how I'm just jumping, dumping references in randomly. I'm a Coen Brothers film now. Um, no, we, yes. the, this 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 podcast is very much taking on the structure of its topic. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, my point is, through a modern lens, especially with all the events of the past couple of years and and the and the last five years before that, the the completely jokey, hokey way it's presented, while it is meant to be mocking, does not treat the material with any kind of seriousness. I mean, all, all I mean, there the, the racism is very much glossed over as cartoonish. And while this is a fantasy movie, they do not address any heavy topics in this movie, and they do send a gloss over, like, there's a lot of racism back in the Depression era. Yeah. <laughs> like, a lot. I mean, I mean uh, you've got the... the um, Tommy is the only African-American speaking character. You see a couple of... On the chain, like a, there's some guys singing in the chain gang, and... You see, and you see a little boy carrying ice. You know, yeah. It's Which, so, you and, know, that... You know, I don't think the Coens really are the ones who should be writing that kind of dialogue anyway. So I'm glad they, you know, they wisely did not go that route. They know. didn't, but at the same time, it, it, it's a different movie. If they tried. It's that. a different movie from a different if you, time. If you think of this film as a love letter to that period, maybe that period doesn't deserve any love letters. Parts of that period. I mean, the Tulsa massacre occurred around this time, you know, that's portrayed in the film, not in your 2000. Um, yeah. So if this is a this is hyping back to a lot of stuff we said about Forrest Gump, this movie is a love letter to folk music more than the era. Yes, but it still glosses over some of the bad stuff in folk music and and the and the Depression era. So yeah, that's definitely a flaw in the film. That said, I still adore this movie. Don't think I don't love this movie. (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it's a case where. Like a lot of 30s musicals, they were supposed to make you feel good. They weren't really supposed to be addressing these kind of issues that seriously. You know, this film is not supposed to be taken directly serious. But, you know, there's plenty of things to talk about about this film. And most Coen Brothers movies, there's always something to talk about. And I think that's it's a big credit to them for making such a funny, surreal musical comedy and still have questions you can discuss, you know about just different characters, various arcs, you know, just the way the movie shot. You know, Roger Deakins spent nine months individually going through each shot to digitally alter it. Like, you know, I think it's, it's the first that... fully digitally color-corrected film. I think yeah. that it won that thing. So yeah. some of the research mentioned that. And, and yet it is not by any means intrusive. I mean, you notice that the film has a color palette and you notice – that like in the sense that it, it gives you the old timey feel, but it's not like you're looking at Avatar and going, Oh God, this is going to be dated yeah. in five minutes. Right. Right. This is not a date. This movie does not feel dated. It feels preserved. Timeless. Yeah. It's, it, it's got that timeless quality. And I, I, th- I think I've said everything I can say about this movie. I could just gush on and on forever, but 
we've gushed for a while. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, and I think that you know, as I said, we could. There's so much more we could break down. This is a, definitely I would call a nerdy movie. Oh, as much yes. as it's a good movie, but this is for Coen Brothers fans. This is one of the movies you just break down and break down and break down. You know. What's your favorite line? Everyone's got a favorite line. What's your favorite song? Everyone's got your favorite song. What's your favorite moment in the movie? It's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it, you can just talk and talk and talk. You know, for me, it's always, you know, you know, the, about the horse meat. It's also, do not seek the treasure. I mean, right. And, we uh, thought you was a toad. We thought you was a toad. Uh, well, sir, I'm with you fellers. Oh, my God. I just... Uh, this movie, I just love it. Yeah, and that's just it. It's just one of those films. Like everybody who sees it, I've never met a single person who does not like this film. It's, it's almost impossible to hate this film. It's. I've met people who thought it was okay. I've never felt anyone who hated it, but I've never. I have met people who've said, "Yeah, it was. It was fun, but you know, they, it didn't stick with them." Which and that's, fun. that's fair. People but, who the soundtrack didn't work for them, and they found it overrated. Therefore, like they didn't quite get why everyone was so excited. But then again. Yeah. This movie did just get hype. I mean, like, there was a lot of, of – it was very prominent for, like, a year. You, you couldn't go anywhere without the soundtrack. It's true. Uh, I, well, when I went and saw it, uh, again, the only person I, – I didn't even know this film existed until this guy's like, hey, we should all go see this film together as a bonding exercise. And we all looked at him like, what the hell are you talking about? I was like, yeah, it won some awards at Canes and stuff. We're like, what? <laughs> I mean, yeah. we, nobody in my group – and, we, um, That's and true. He, it it was like a slow roll. Like it, it wasn't like it blew out opening weekend and it was everywhere. But like two months post release, everyone was singing it. Yeah, Mar- March two thousand one. Everybody had heard of this film. You know. Um, yeah. And so. I think that's, you know, Cohen's got nominated for best screenplay for this uh, or adapted screenplay, which is funny because uh, the middle they barely used the the Odyssey as for ad- adaptation, but it's you know it, it had its you know. It, it was just one of those films, like a lot movies of two thousand. There were a lot of special stuff coming out, lots of great music related movies. You, know, you had High Fidelity, you had Almost Famous, you had this. Uh, meanwhile, you also had movies like Gladiator. I mean, it was two thousand was one of those very unique years for movies, and you know this film, you know, developed this following partially in the slow build because, it, you know, by the you know it was more of a hit in two thousand one than it was in 2000 but that's also because it was just it was so quietly released in 2000 yeah i mean i don't know man i think we should wrap up i just yeah can't gush enough about this movie yeah. so yeah so uh folks if you like this podcast please make sure to tell your friends uh please write us reviews on whatever platform you're using you know we always love seeing the reviews and uh make sure to hit us up on our facebook group fans of good bad and nerdy movie podcast on twitter as well that's good pad and nerdy movie pod. Um, guys, you got any last things you want to cover? I just want to say that this film is, it's going to be surprising. And I, I kind of want to go back to Will's comment. If you can find someone who's not seen it, watch it with them. That's the thing. It really is a film, even though it bears repeating the first encounter with it. If you go in blind is the best. I, I definitely was second that. It's one of those movies where, yeah, I showed it to my son a while back, and he was a little bored with it, but he was cracking up for certain things too. And he's seven, so I was like, it's an, yeah, it's almost very much all ages too. So it's, he may not get some of the jokes, but stuff he did get where he thought was really funny. And and you know, the music is just one of those things. It's that you'll want to sing along as you're listening. 
yeah, you guys should go see this film, but uh, I have to go now. I hear down the road there's a man who'll pay you $10 to sing into a can. Ooh, boy, that's a mighty fine picking and a singing. <laughs> picking and a singing. Oh, man, that whole sequence is great. Yeah, uh, folks, uh, thanks again for listening. And please, 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 if you are going to uh, start a uh, bluegrass band, make sure you do fake how many people are in the group and sign with many X's as possible. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. All right. That was a good. Oh, man, that was great. I mean, we really could have been talking about this for another three hours. This is like one that we all just want to crush on this film. We're just hearts, hearts, hearts. We got to have something. Someone's going to have a salty take on it. It's not right if Will.